Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Today on How She Really Does It, I have Alice Boys, and we're going to be talking about anxiety and really going and diving deep into anxiety. What exactly is anxiety? We'll talk about the difference between a disorder and with the rest of us who don't may not have the psychological disorders, but the extremes, but have anxiety on a daily basis and what those two differences look like. We're going to talk about why some people have it and others don't. And we're going to talk about fear and anxiety. We'll talk about shame and anxiety. You know, my favorite topic, talking about shame and what happens with anxiety. We will also be talking about how to shift from out of an anxious mindset into one where you can move through things. And we'll talk about the things about uh, examples of how anxiety gets in the way. What are some of the things that we do to avoid it and what happens? Alice has some great quotes in there that I love and just some nuggets that you can really take into. We talk about anxiety and perfection. So lots of great topics and insights for you to really dive deep into this anxiety. And remember, it's not about doing this perfectly. It's about what nuggets can you take from the show and integrate it in your life? Because there's intellectual knowledge that you can get, but then how how do you go about integrating it into your life so you can take your life from good to great? Or maybe your life isn't, you know, this is as good as it gets and you want to make it good. So how can you make it to that next step instead of thinking that you need to go from as good as it gets to creating your best life? And well, that doesn't happen to people like me. It's about how can you take it to the next level? What does that next step look like? Get comfortable there and then stretch and grow again. Get comfortable there, stretch and grow again, get comfortable. And that's how you get to a great life. So I hope you enjoy this interview and I will circle back to wrap up. Anxiety. Do you have it? Are you looking for ways to help you move through your anxiety instead of sticking your head in the sand and trying to hide from it? Alice Boys, PhD, is here to talk about anxiety. She is the author of the new release, The Anxiety Toolkit, Strategies for Fine-Tuning Your Mind and Moving Past Your Stuck Points. Alice, hello and welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. Did I say your last name correctly? Yeah, boys, like boys and girls. <laughs> okay. I, I usually check and I forgot to, and my name is Corinne, and that, so I'm always trying to be sensitive to everybody. So, um, so let's first talk about anxiety and what exactly is anxiety? Because I think a lot of people say it a lot like, oh, I feel anxious. They, it's a go-to feeling, it's state that they know about, but what is it exactly? Yes. So anxiety, there's obviously anxiety disorders and then there's, then there's anxiety in general. So you have the anxiety disorders like obsessive compulsive disorder or panic disorder or generalized anxiety disorder, those kinds of things. And then anxiety we think of as something that has four components. So it has the emotional component, which is, you know, feeling nervous or worried or anxious or all those sort of synonym words for, for anxiety. And then it has a physical component, which are those physical symptoms of anxiety, your heart racing, you might feel a bit some numbness or tingling in your hands or feet. Uh, all of those 
physical sim- symptoms, sweating, that kind of thing that we associate with anxiety. Then you have the behavioral component. The behavioral component is often different forms of avoidance, or it can be the other end of things where it might be excessive checking. So, you know, you think of examples like obsessive compulsive disorder, where, where someone's anxiety turns into obsessive checking. Uh, the avoidance side of things might be things like eating disorders, for example, where somebody avoids any foods with any kind of fat content or that kind of thing, or someone with panic disorder who avoids certain types of situations or even like completely avoids completely going out of their, their own home, those kinds of things. And then it has the cognitive component. And the cognitive cognitive just means thoughts. So things like um, making negative predictions. So always jumping to the worst conclusion about what the explanation for something might be. I, so I want to go back to something you said, the obsessive, did you call it chicken? Obsessive compulsive. Oh, checking. Sorry, it's accent. Yeah, there's certain words, um, there's certain words that come out uh, <laughs> different. <laughs> checking. So just to clarify for the listeners, because you're from New Zealand, correct? Yeah. Okay. So checking, what's obsessive checking mean? Uh, checking, like uh, uh, like uh, C-H-E. C-K-I-N-G. So what would that be? Um, oh, check, oh, checking. Yeah, checking. checking. <laughs> Sorry, there, there are a couple <laughs> of words that, um, that I just cannot say in American. Um, that would be uh, one of them. I found a new one. <laughs> that's darling. Okay, so obsessive checking. Oh, I, and so it's that idea. I've done this to probably, there's probably a continuum and I've done it to a degree like when you worry that did I really shut down the garage door? And But when it becomes where it gets harder to function, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, like, um, and it could be anything like just uh, like checking email, like if you're, or checking your text mm. messages, like if you're in a new relationship or something like that, it could be um, obsessively checking email or obsessively uh, checking, maybe if you've broken up with somebody, it can sometimes be looking at that person's social media accounts for any signs that maybe they were cheating on you or those kinds of things. So, so anxiety and behaviorally, anxiety tends to go one of, two ways either people go into avoidance mode or they go into sort of hyper hyper vigilant over checking mode okay and so what's the difference between um when anxiety as a disorder versus the fact that all of us have anxiety to some degree yeah so for the most part disorders get get counted as disorders when they get to the point that they're either significantly distressing for the person so so that's a subjective thing about, you know, how distressed do these symptoms make the person or whether they're in, impairing. So whether they get in the, in the way of the person's life, whether, they, whether they're getting in the way of the person's life uh, life in the work domain or in the relationships domain or those kinds of things. And then obviously you have the, the, the specific types of anxiety disorders, the ones I've mentioned, post-traumatic stress disorders, another one that that have, um, you know, a specific criteria that people need to meet to uh, be classified as having that disorder. Okay, so it sounds like if it's getting in the way of you being able to function in your life. Yeah, basically. Okay, that's good to know. So we're going to talk about not the disorder part, but really about the rest of us who have anxiety and um, it's, it's not getting in the way. But, you know, like I said earlier in the intro, we may want to stick our head in the sands, right? Because we're feeling this and it's uncomfortable. How's that sound? 
Good. Yeah. Okay. So why do we have it? So for those of us in that realm, right, in that part of the continuum, why do we have anxiety? What purpose does it serve? Yeah. So all all emotions have an evolutionary purpose. We've, we've evolved them for a reason. So one of the things I often talk about with people is the difference between fear and anxiety. So fear, for fear, we have that fight, flight, freeze system. So if you think about that system is designed for like if you encounter a predator, you know, the predator is standing in front of you and you you have that instinct to either fight the predator, to run away or to freeze and try and, um, you know, hope the predator moves on. And then anxiety is more of a hypervigilant system. So anxiety is like you hear a noise in the, in the forest and you start looking out for potential signs of danger. So the evolutionary function of anxiety is to make us is to put us on the lookout for for danger. So it gets uh, it gets the system gets turned on when we get a sense that there might be some kind of danger. And then the idea is that we can't easily distract ourselves from that sense that we keep we keep on the lookout, we keep checking, uh, rather than just kind of you know going easily going back to feeling relaxed. So that's one of the reasons why it's sort of hard to turn anxiety off. And one of the big trends in psychology lately has been this recognition that these these emotions that we've we've often you know, we often call quote unquote negative emotions mm-hmm. actually all have like a positive aspect to them as well. They all have a, a purposeful and helpful aspect. Yeah, so I've had Todd Cashton on the show recently, and we talked a lot about that. You know, the upside of the dark side, the the yeah. dark side of the emotions. So, okay, so I want to go back to this with the anxiety and the fear. So, is anxiety like the initial like? Okay, it, there's a, that alert, and then fear comes after that. Well, often you the I guess the fear system is designed to be triggered fairly uh, quickly. So you might get the the fear might be instant before you, uh, you you may get a definite sign of danger before you necessarily without without ever getting anxiety. And then you with anxiety, your system is designed to have a lot of false alarms. So this this idea that we it's much better to get a to get a false alarm than to miss a true alarm. So you don't want to miss a real danger, but it's actually not, but in an evolutionary sense, it's not dangerous to have tons of false alarms. So that's why we're, we're sort of wired to have a lot of false alarms. So why do some of us have it, have more anxiety than others? A lot of it's nature. Like, so, you know, they've done studies of things like babies, startle response and so some some babies will startle at a much lower level of noise they'll and their intensity of their startle reaction will be higher and they'll take a longer time to get back to feeling calm after they've been startled so some of it's some a lot of it is nature some people have specific kind of triggering events that trigger their anxiety sometimes it's just that you know for for people growing up, they might not have a very good fit between their nature and their environment or their parents' parenting style, and they end up um, they end up with anxiety. And a lot of it is that anxiety causes us to react in certain ways that then cause anxiety to snowball. So the more people avoid, the more they have the urge to avoid in the future, and so. You know, let's say somebody avoids dealing with customer service. So I know a lot of people like that. They just they hate they hate having to call like the credit card company or the or you know any type of 
customer service situation like that. They don't like to make complaints. They don't like to return things, those kinds of things. So if you, when you avoid a, a certain type of situation, your avoid your anxiety about that situation just just grows and it often spreads out. So someone again, like the eating disorder example, someone might start out avoiding like just butter, and then they that that avoidance might spread out to avoiding salad dressing and then it might just start spreading out more and more and more and then when they get confronted with the thing that they're trying to avoid in a way that they can't they can't escape it like they ask for dressing on the side when they go to a restaurant and then the the server mucks up and it's and the dressing comes out on the you know on the food they have this really intense reaction to that and so that's that's kind of like a clinical example, but all of these clinical examples, the principles work the same, in exactly the same way with, with more everyday examples. Okay. And so when you, when you mentioned about the babies with, you know, some of them startle at, at lower sounds, um, somebody who may be more prone to anxiety, are they more of that, like the highly sensitive person? Yeah, they... Um, they they can be so um, not all highly sensitive people are anxious um, and, and not all anxious people are highly sensitive it's but you know there can be an association where where if somebody has whereas if someone's a highly sensitive person and their environment doesn't well they don't they don't understand how that works or their environment doesn't kind of fit with that um, then they then they can end up with anxiety Okay. And then why do, why do pe- some people not have anxiety or that some, much of it? Yeah. Some people are just wired to be, to be calm. We have, you know, if you think about a tribe it's, in a tribe, it's good to have some people who are bold and think about the upside and don't think about the downside. Don't think about things that could go wrong. Don't think before they act. And then to have some people who are who are way more cautious and who are the ones that are always saying, Hey, you know, what about this? What about this thing that could go wrong? And so, you you know, to have sort of some people at either extreme and then a bunch of people in the middle is sort of, is overall quite, quite an adaptive situation. Um, So you use the word tribe. I use the word team. It's like, you want to have it in the United States football. And I don't really know much about football, but I know we have a quarterback and we have a wide receiver and we have, you know, a running back and we have an offensive team and a defensive team. The ball is only being touched by one person, but you need all of these different people to, to be able to win the game and you have to be able to do it in a series. And so what you're talking about is that in a group of people that for somebody to have, you know, to, to be a more on the alert can be helpful in the team or in the relationship. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's the same thing of like, you know, I can be really detailed oriented and my husband can see the bigger picture and we make a good team in how we kind of parent and move through the world. And that sounds like what you're saying is that it's not that we're judging if you have anxiety, it's bad. It's just that's what your nature is. And that can be helpful as well as somebody who doesn't have anxiety. It can be helpful and these can be great teams. Yeah, and you can learn to switch in and out of of an anxious mindset and a more optimistic mindset. So even within yourself, you can learn how to how to to cognitively shift when it's in, when it's in to your advantage to do that. So you can kind of um, you know regardless of what 
your nature is, whether you have a tendency to maybe be too optimistic or too pessimistic or whatever it is, once you, you know, learn some techniques, you can easily shift that and kind of enjoy the benefits of both. Well, that's wonderful, Alice, because at first I was like, oh my gosh, we're doomed. Either your brains are wired this way or your brain's wired that way. So can you share with the listeners, what are the things that they can do um, to help shift their mindset? Because if they're in that anxious state, what is something that they can do to help move them out of that? Yeah. So one of the the really uh, common techniques in cognitive therapy is this uh, three question technique, which where you ask yourself the worst, best, and most realistic likely likely outcomes of something. So you know, imagine you ask you're thinking about asking your boss for a raise. And the worst case scenario is that your boss is angry at you for asking. Best case scenario is, is that you, your boss instantly says yes and and gives you a higher raise than you expected. You know, most case, uh, most realistic scenario is, you know, maybe you get a small raise now or maybe you don't get a raise now, but it, you know, makes it more like, you know, having asked at this point makes it more likely that maybe you'll get one in six months' time or you find out specifically what it is you need to do to get a raise or those kinds of things. So if you, are, if you go through those three questions, you can, if you're somebody that tends to think of the worst-case scenario, uh, of, of what could happen or tends to expect negative outcomes for things, then you can instantly sort of balance out your thinking just by using that those three questions. And in the beginning, it's feel it might feel quite sort of artificial or forced or it might be hard to do that. But then after a while of doing it, it just becomes an automatic thing that you do and it becomes a lot easier and starts to feel much, much more natural. Because it's you're learning a new technique, right? And so it's it's not like I can I totally can relate to that worst case scenario because sometimes I just like jump off the cliff with like, oh my god, this is gonna happen, right? Like I have these instead of like these fantasies, I have these like dark happenings, and um, but I do know like when you go, okay, that what's the worst, you know, and will that really happen? What's the best thing? And then for me, I like to live in the realistic. Uh, realm. Okay, what's the realistic realm? I'll be where I am. <laughs> or, you know, it could be even like, if I want to have go out with a friend, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? They could say no. So don't ask them. Right. And then I could have this pity party. Oh, I'm not a good enough friend. What's the best thing that can happen is we could go and it could be so much fun. And what's the realistic thing that can happen? They can say yes or no. And if they say no, we can reschedule. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And one of the things that anxious people often find helpful is that a lot of people sort of get that message of, you know, just don't worry so much, don't overthink it, you know, just be more spontaneous, be more happy-go-lucky. And if you get that message all the time, you can really feel like there's something wrong with your nature. And so another, you know, something that, that people who are anxious can can do is recognize how they might find that preparing mentally preparing for things that could go wrong actually helps helps them move forward so it might be you know let's say that you're um you know planning to go somewhere new and you're you think you know maybe you're going on an, an international trip and you know you have to get from the the airport in the foreign country to your hotel and you think of a plan a and then you also think of a sort of a plan b and a plan c for if plan a you know doesn't work out for some reason and for some anxious people going through that, they, they, they rec- can recognize that going through that process of coming up with contingency plans can actually help them 
move forward with things? Can it actually give them more confidence? Whereas for people who are naturally happy-go-lucky, that idea of you know thinking about things that could go wrong could feel really aversive and unhelpful. So, so part of it is kind of knowing your nature and owning your nature in that way. Okay, so is there a point though that recognizing how mentally preparing for things to go wrong can help you, but is there a point where it can actually get in your way because you're so preparing for A, B, C, maybe you decide, oh, I need to go to Z and have all these different preparations. So is there... Yep, definitely. So in the um, one of the things in the book is I've got this big chart of examples of, you know, when being sort of cautious can be useful and when it can be and when it starts to become unhelpful. And people can kind of do that for themselves, like come up with different examples of of when it was of of when it's helpful and when it kind of jumps the shark and starts to become unhelpful. And you only really learn that from experience of of thinking back over situations where you, where you, you, you analyze what you've done and start to see a pattern of, you know, this is, this is the amount of preparation that was useful. And then this is the amount that got more into something that was anxiety driven and, and was actually unhelpful. So that's circling back and checking in like, okay, did this having A through Z, was that necessary? You know, how many different options did I really need? Yeah. And just even, you know, kind of, you could develop some sort of rules of thumb. So, uh, you know, something like like we got burgled recently and it's, you know, when that happens, it's really easy to sort of go into to self-criticism mode about, you know, all the things that you could have done to prevent it. But then it's also really easy to get overwhelmed about all the different options that you might be able to take for preventing it happening in the future. So even just sort of thinking in that's that kind of scenario, right, I'm going to do three things, you know, rather than thinking I'm going to do 10 things. So you can kind of find the middle ground. And when you find the middle ground, it's a lot easier to avoid that paralysis. So if you, you know, you can, you can get stuck thinking, well, there's so many things I could do, but none of them are really going to guarantee like that something's you know not going to go wrong in the future. So if you can get kind of in the habit of you know picking a number and you know two or three or four or those sort of a, a very short list of 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 actionable steps that you can take, if you if you start doing that, um, you can you know you you're generally not going to get into that uh, paralysis mode. Um, so that makes me think of Kristen Neff. She's been a guest on the show and she's a compassion researcher and she would always say compassionate people have boundaries. And that's what it sounds like with what you're saying is that, okay, we can get into this, but if it's, let's just, let's do three, let's focus on this three right now. And, and then we can, like you said, test it out, right? You can always go back and check and did it work? Maybe, maybe there's something else I can add to, but having those boundaries in there or the constraints. So, because otherwise, it's, wouldn't it be easy to get stuck and yeah, not move yeah. forward? Yeah, I mean, you've, you've had some amazing guests. guests. I love them, both Todd's work and Kristen's work. So, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah the guests we've had, just phenomenal guests. It's been great. And I'm, ha- I'm happy you're here to talk about anxiety. So, um, okay, so these two are great examples. The three questions, recognizing how mentally preparing for things to go wrong can help you. And those are ways that we can shift. And so that makes me think of, 
Um, so another guest of mine, Carol Dweck, who's at Stanford and she studied success and she talked about growth mindset and fixed mindset with the idea that, you know, we can develop. And it sounds like that's what you're saying. Even though you may be hardwired for towards anxiety, it, it doesn't mean that you have to live there. You, there are things that you can do, hence your book, the toolkit to help you move, shift out of it a bit. Yeah. And there, there's also, there's kind of two aspects of it. There's, um, there's that aspect of, of knowing how to manage your anxiety. But then what also happens when you get a toolkit of skills for dealing with anxiety is that anxiety itself doesn't feel as scary. So a lot of people get part of their, part of their anxiety reaction is, is driven by that feeling anxious about feeling anxious. And then, but when you've got, when you, when you use these skills, like when you develop lots of self-compassion, when you understand the evolutionary basis for emotions, when you've got like a bunch of cognitive skills for dealing with things, you can really actually get a lot more comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. And that's part of it too. I love that. Getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. We talk about that a lot on the show. So, um, can you, what is anxiety? Can you share with the listeners what anxiety feels like for you? Because you talked about the physical components. So mm-hmm. can you give an example of what it feels like to you? And then maybe examples of other people of what anxiety feels like? Yeah. So it's all of those, it is just like you're, you know, breathing quickly and your heart racing. I mean, those are the things that people come up with the most. Some people might feel a bit lightheaded, some people might be prone to sweating. Like guys are often really aware of um, of sweating. Like they they feel really self conscious about maybe if they're going to give a talk or something. Are they going to show? Are they are they going to sweat or is their voice going to um, uh, show signs of anxiety? Those kinds of things. So any of those physical wound up things, people might have have trouble sleeping or those kinds of things because they they've got anxiety. And and so when you talk about those, do do the feelings of anxiety, do they, like the physical feelings, do they feel that way from for other so-called negative emotions? Like wouldn't it be the same for fear for some people? Yeah, so I mean there are, yeah, it's a, I mean fear and anxiety are pretty closely related and there's, you know, a bit, bit of a fuzzy boundary between between those, um, you know, people that, that are depressed usually describe their emotions quite differently. You know, they might they, they might describe feeling really heavy in their body, or people who are depressed often have early morning awakening as a physical symptom. So they wake up like at four or five in the morning on a regular basis. So you know, there are some dis, there are some distinctions um, between between the different kinds of emotions. Because yeah, for me, I mean, I, when I think of being anxious, there's kind of this buzzing feeling um, that I have. It's you know almost like being over caffeinated. Like when you talk about the heart racing, that yeah. there's that buzzing, like kind of jumping out of my skin feeling um, that I have. Yep. So that that sounds you know pretty pretty typical and pretty much like anxiety. Okay. And I mean, one of the things is that anxiety and excitement feel pretty. Uh, similar physiologically so when you've got something exciting happening that's both things that's anxiety provoking and and exciting 
you can you can either cognitively choose to label it as anxiety or choose to label it as excited. And I often say to myself, like, okay, what percentage am I excited? What percentage am I anxious? So I might say I'm, you know, I'm 80% excited and 20% anxious. And that helps me sort of recognize that all of the the arousal, the physiological arousal isn't just anxiety. Mm-hmm. That, and that's a really good point because sometimes I think when we do this work, we can think, oh, it's just this one thing, but it isn't like a, maybe a couple different emotions or a few different emotions that are coming up, just like you're talking about 80% and 20% or some sort of uh, percentage. Yeah. Um, and when you're talking about the excitement, I just realized recently, I don't really like to have that feeling. I don't like anxiety. And I also think that's probably one of the reasons I don't like the, the excitement, like that that coming out of my skin, I kind of like to hang out in the neighborhood of calm and peace. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can you you can become more comfortable with those sensations. So I mean some people with anxiety disorders, like they'll avoid they'll avoid intense exercising because what working out feels at any intensity feels too similar to their anxiety symptoms. And again, like these are clinical examples, but they don't always just apply to to people with clinical problems that you know, people might avoid sex or because they've because they don't like feeling sweaty they don't like feeling that sense of arousal so it can be quite useful in some respects to to practice uh, being more comfortable with those feelings of physiological arousal and I guess so for me it would be to practice being comfortable with being excited and and not and then moving through it, not letting it overwhelm me. Yeah, or just, you know, yeah, or letting yourself sit with it just for even if it's just like for a minute, like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna sit like like when you do a yoga class and you and you know you do a you do a pose and you pay attention to the feelings of the stretch rather than distracting yourself to the feeling from the feelings of the stretch. And it's kind of like that, just like allowing yourself to pay attention to all those um, different sensations that are going, going on rather than trying to move through them super quickly because you can, you can kind of get to the point where they are not so where the, with the arousal, with noticing their arousal doesn't trigger more arousal. Okay, that makes sense. Um, now, so we talked about what anxiety feels like and the differences. What are some examples of how anxiety can get in the way? Yeah, so there are there are a bunch of these. So, so avoidance coping is a really big one. Is where you you avoid. So, a lot of people will avoid. So again, there's like the clinical example, like the most clinical example would be someone with like severe agoraphobia that just won't ever leave their house. And then the more typical examples are people that avoid certain situations, like they'll avoid awkward conversations. They might avoid, like let's say they recognize that they've made a mistake and they might feel so much shame over having made a mistake that they avoid actually doing the things that they need to do to sort it out. Or they might need to negotiate something with someone like a tradesperson, but they feel nervous about like how much something's going to cost, or they feel unfamiliar, and so they avoid doing they avoid negotiating up front, and then they sort of spend the whole time that they're working with the person being really worried that they're going to get some incredibly high bill at the end of it. So um, it can also be avoiding like difficult interpersonal situations, like somebody 
you might be asked, someone might ask you to be a bridesmaid at their destination wedding or something like that. And you might not be able to afford to go, but you might feel ashamed about or embarrassed about not being able to afford to go or just not want to have the awkward conversation. And therefore you delay like letting them know for ages. And then, you know, the longer you delay, the more awkward it gets, those kinds of things. Okay. So we talk a lot about shame on here. So I love the fact that you brought it. Brene has been a, a, a frequent guest on the show, Brene Brown. And um, so I want to understand this a bit more about shame and anxiety. So you have that shame of, I don't have enough money, right? The money shame. Where, where does the anxiety come into there? I'm fascinated. Yeah. So, so, you know, shame gives rise to anxiety, really. So if you've got, you know, if you've got feelings of shame, if you've got feelings of being inadequate, then that's going to give rise to to anxiety about that inadequacy being uncovered somehow. Um, Or um, if you've got shame and you think it's going to cause other people to reject you or judge you harshly or those kinds of things, and that's going to give rise to anxiety. Wow, that is interesting. So it sounds like before when you're talking about fear and anxiety, the anxiety was kind of the alert for the fear where this time it's more about the shame comes and then the anxiety follows. It rises because of the shame. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Um, and then w- can you now give examples of what moving through anxiety looks like? Yeah. So I guess um, moving through anxiety can be just dealing with things that you've been avoiding. So Sometimes it's just doing like a little a little part of something. It might be, you know, sometimes for me, like let's say I've got an article to write for a magazine or, you know, something like that. And I'm, you know, but might have been procrastinating doing it for a while. And I get to like, you know, four or five days before it's due and I'm like, I've got to do this thing. And sometimes all it is is like opening up a document and putting the, you know, putting putting the title on the doc, on the document, you know, sometimes that's all that all I need to do to get over that hump of avoidance and, and get started on something, Mm -hmm. or it might be just making a phone call to get something like, you know, you've ever been avoiding taking care of something that's, that's, you know, not working at your house or your car's been making a weird noise and you have to call, you know, you have to call someone to deal with it. Sometimes it's just making a little, a little start on something. Mm -hmm. Um, other times it's, it's you know, doing that. It might be um, taking a step back from something and getting some perspective. So sometimes people will react to anxiety by like sort of over, like banging their head against a brick wall with, with something. Like they might be, um, you know, stuck on something that they're in their work, that something that they're working on. And, it, and moving through anxiety might be like going – to a national park for the weekend and, you know, getting some – and national parks are good because they get they provide awe and awe is a very expensive, cognitively expensive type of uh, emotion. So awe helps you think big picture. You know, we go you go to a national park and you see the Grand Canyon or you see the, you know, whatever it is, and it's – you know, these, they're big and they're awe-inspiring. And awe is definitely helps you think big picture, whereas anxiety is – tends to make your thinking narrow and rigid. So you can kind of use that as an as an antidote. So Alice, you're so darling, but I want to make sure my listeners get every word. Are you yeah. saying aura or awe? Uh, the second one. Awe? 
Yeah. So the ah, the A W E. Okay, that, yeah. that's that's just really clear. Um, so yeah, thank you for checking. That's really good. Because yeah, some, sometimes there are mix ups. <laughs> well, we want we want every. I mean, this is such great information, and I want the listeners to be able to have it. So, and and I love your accent. I love I love New Zealanders, and we have a lot of Aussies and stuff. So they're sitting here probably understanding everything. <laughs> but and the Americans, you know, and the Canadians we have, um, they may be a bit you know confused. So, and I don't want them to get stuck on that word and then lose the other stuff. So you're talking about the ah now. I want to circle back to something you said, because, you know, especially in America, we have this like just work harder, press through, move through, right? Really moving through is about just sucking it up and doing it. And you said part of moving through is maybe if you're stuck on a project, go to the national forest, go to the national parks, step away from it and then come back. And why is that so important? Besides the awe factor and the Grand Canyon, that seems so counter culture, what we're programmed to do in our society, especially here in the States. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's allowing you to get a different perspective. It's allowing your brain to like to work on a problem in the background. And sometimes some problems are better solved by that, those brain processes that, where your brain will work on something in the background rather than that, that dedicated bashing away at something. Um, so sometimes we, we often get into overthinking or ruminating mode and that tends to make us less clear about decisions rather at at a point it makes you less clear about decisions rather than more clear. So sometimes it's the stepping away from it that you need to do just to allow that different processing mode to kick in, to get some different stimuli happening, uh, that can often, uh, that can often lead to the the thought breakthrough that you need. There's also like this general principle of you want to soften in response to negative emotions rather than tensing. So um, you want to keep your, so if you're dealing with something that you're anxious about, you want to make your, your body physically soft as you're, as you're dealing with it rather than that sort of white, white knuckling it. Um, And that's, that's generally how you want to approach things that you feel anxious about rather rather than rather than that just trying to get through it that really t- that tightening up um that you you're going to reduce your anxiety over the long term if you can learn to to do things that make you anxious with a soft body and with um you know getting your breathing right and that type of thing Okay, so I understand that because of all the work that I've done and, you know, and these great guests that I've had the opportunity to talk with through the years. But my, I don't know if it's my inner instinct or just the decisions that I made, you know, is is not to soften. It's like to harden up and to fight it, right? And there's some people that have a terminology of, I just have to fight this. I, this is a battle. You have to battle food. And so why is softening? Because sometimes if, if you had told me this 10 years ago, if we we're having this conversation, I would have said, oh, that would make me weak and meek mm. to soften. I get it now. But for those listeners who may be thinking, Alice, that means I'm going to get weak and be run over by my anxiety. What do you have to say to that? Yeah. So it's not like, so often people talk about um, you know, beating your anxiety or mastering your anxiety or, or all of those sorts of words. And really the, the words that are like getting into a fight with your anxiety or, you know, you're going to be the master and the anxiety is going to be, be the slave. And it, what, you, <laughs> what people find is that the more that you fight your anxiety, the more it fights back. So, you know, the more that you try and 
so you know distraction can work with if you're with distraction can work sometimes but but sometimes when you're trying to block out thoughts you get like a rebound effect where you where the more you try and block out the thought the more you Mm-hmm. end up thinking about it so it's the same kind of principle as the more that you fight against something the more you're going to experience it and there are lots of like parallels like you know like in a in a use example of like yoga again where in yoga like what you do is you get into a you know you get into your pose and then you then you soft then you soften your body you soften the places where you're holding tension in your body and then you're able to like stretch out further. It's the mm-hmm. softening that causes you to be able to to stretch and go deeper. And on a you know on a life level as, as well, it's that it's often the the softening that allows you to stretch more, stretch and grow. That is that's a great because as soon as you said that about the yoga and for the for the listeners out there who take yoga, who practice have a yoga practice, I'm sure they can understand that. Because it is, it's about, you know, if you have tension in the hips, it's about how can you, you have to let that tension go. It's, there's that releasing. And that's what you're saying with the anxiety, just soften to release, to let the anxiety go instead of coming up against it. Yeah. There's a phrase um, that I really like called, if you're not willing to feel it, you will. So if you're not willing to feel anxiety, you'll do all of these, um, you'll use all of these avoidance strategies. You'll get yourself into, into all, all sorts of mess. Whereas if you are willing to feel anxiety, you go through anxiety in a more natural way. So anxiety is designed to be temporary. It's all these negative emotions are a signal, a signaling systems, and they wouldn't be very good signals if they got stuck in the on position. So, you know, things like shame, right? They're designed to make us do things that, to, they're designed to stop us from doing things that would end up getting us excluded from our tribe. You know, and the idea is, is that that would be dangerous, in an evolutionary sense, to get ex- socially excluded, so you um, you you want to. Um, I remember when, for like an, an example, I remember a, f- a friend of mine saying that talking to me about doing podcasts and things for my book and I said oh I think I'll be all right doing short ones but I really don't want to do long ones and it took like exactly one long interview for me to feel comfortable doing long interviews like whereas if I'd avoided that if I'd said to anyone that wanted to do an interview oh well I'll only do 10 minutes or I'll only do 15 minutes I never would have gotten over that by but by being willing to feel anxiety you you move through it in the natural way because anxiety doesn't mean stop, does it? Anxiety means, yeah, anxiety puts you on the lookout for danger, but but more often than not, that's a false alarm, and that's design, That's how the system's wired up, is to to give you lots of false alarms because you know it can't be so precise that it always gets that one hundred percent right. So if it's not going to be one hundred percent right then it's going to err on the side of giving you lots of false alarms rather than having you miss something potentially dangerous. So it's so a lot of time you're having to recognize, you know, is this, is this a false alarm? Is this one of my typical false alarms where I'm getting that really strong stop signal, but it isn't. And you can kind of, after a while, you can mostly learn to distinguish between your typical false alarms and something that might be a real gut instinct that something's wrong. And that's a really, I mean, that's a really subtle thing, but that is something that people can 
kind of work towards. So the thing that I, I keeps coming back to me in the messages that you're the seeds that you're planting in this show is that it's really important to become aware of your emotions and like your anxiety and what does it mean? What's the gut response of no, this definitely means no. And what is this of Corinne, it's time to pay attention, pay attention. There can be something here. Pay attention. Yeah. And sometimes you just get, you get used to what your pattern is. Like I know every time I go to spend like a large amount of money on something, like if I'm booking an international air ticket, I'll feel anxious about that, but I know it's just a, it's a typical response to, you know, push and confirm purchase on a large purchase. Um, so after a while, you start to learn that that's not, that's not likely to be a sign that something's wrong. But then you might have, you know, something is, if you're getting a sign that something's wrong and it's not one of your usual anxiety patterns, then you know to listen to that, that, it, that that's more of a gut instinct. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. Um, what about anxiety and perfectionism? Because I know you talk about that in your book. And I think what a great topic to talk about here. Yeah, so we know that that like clinical perfectionism is a risk factor for lots, you know, for anxiety disorders, eating disorders, those sorts of common, uh, the common colds of the mental mental health world, um, and um, it, so it, it can and it can be it can work both ways where perfectionism puts you at risk of an anxiety problem. Um, so you can see where you know if somebody's got these really extremely high standards, they're going to be sort of more anxious about meeting those standards, more self-critical when they when they don't. Um, and then anxiety can cause you to be perfectionistic. So sometimes people will react to anxiety by developing super high standards in a in a self-protective way. Like they'll think I can protect you know I can protect myself from bad things happening if I'm 100% perfect. But if I slip up from being 100% perfect, then bad things will happen. And how does that really work? <laughs> um, like a, there's a um, phrase in psychology um, called an, an unrelenting, unrelenting standard schema. So, you know, somebody might have this idea that if they, um, if they always score at the top of the class, that's okay. But like if they get, you know, second or third in their class on a test or something, then that's not okay. So they're going to prevent disaster. The person's going to prevent disaster or in a, you know, work context, context, it might be, you know, always being the lead salesperson in your, in your team. And you might feel like, you know, for, for anyone else, the standard might be, you know, performing in the top third or the top half or something like that. But for you, you might feel like, if you don't score at the absolute top, then um, things are going to fall apart. You're end up going to catastrophes are going to happen. You're going to end up getting rejected. And then the the big trap with that is that people that have that issue, they tend to um, when they achieve a really high standard, they don't feel more secure, and therefore they up their standards. So they just keep making higher and higher standards because. They keep kind of going along on the assumption that when they reach their high standards, they're going to feel calmer and feel like they've got more self-esteem and feel less less insecure. And when that doesn't happen, they just escalate things. And then you get this really big cycle happening. 
it's that I'll finally get to that promised land. But then isn't that where like real burnout comes from and where then people get into despair because they're like, okay, there's, it's not, they've built something that wasn't sustainable. They keep raising these standards and it's not sustainable. And then at some point they're like, I I just, I got to get off this ride. It's not working. Isn't that what happens? Yeah. The the things that tend to happen are things like the person might start to avoid, uh, avoid feedback because they, you know, they're so scared of getting any negative feedback that they only want to get feedback if it's going to be absolutely glowingly, amazingly positive. So if the person's like only willing to expose themselves to feedback, if they're sure of that, then they're not going to expose them to feedback as, as themselves to feedback as much as would be optimal. And therefore they're not going to actually get ahead as much as they, they potentially would. So you, you know, it's very much like people end up shooting themselves in the foot because of the, um, because of the the sort of ultra high standards and, and unwillingness to tolerate anything other than that. So as we wrap up, Alice, what are a couple of takeaways for the listeners about um, that they can take into their life? Uh, one is just to to you know the the book is called the anxiety toolkit because they because it's the idea that that we you know we know all these good strategies from research we know all these strategies that work for most people but but individuals need to figure out what's going to work for them and what's going to work for them on a long term basis so it very much is a process of experimentation and people who are anxious typically don't like to do stuff they like to have guarantees um, that they don't like to do stuff where there's any element of uncertainty. So they like to be guaranteed that something's going to work. So it's sort of knowing that that's part of anxiety and being willing to try things and find what's, what's best for you. And then the other takeaway is to, is to really get to, to, to know your own nature and change your relationship with, with being anxiety prone. If you are anxiety prone so that you start to understand the benefits that it can have for you sometimes and start to see it as more of like a positive or neutral part of your personality rather than as something that you want to be fighting or battling or, you know, all of those kinds of things. So there's no need to judge it, understand it, and then learn about how you can move through it or what, how, if you need to take a break from it. Yeah. Or learn that it can, that it can, it can actually exist. Like, you know, you can be both anxious and confident, you know, it's not that you need to get rid of the anxiety, your feelings of anxiety to have all the positive feelings that you, that you want to have as well. You can feel both anxious and and confident, both anxious and have self-esteem, those kinds of things that those, that all of that can coexist. That I think is such a a great, thing to say and what a way to close because I think that's the concern isn't if I'm anxious then I can't be confident if I'm anxious then I can't um, have a good life but it's about you can have both and move through yeah exactly well Alice thank you so much for being a guest today thank you I feel um, you know you've mentioned all those other huge names and that feels uh, amazing that that I'm now joining that club (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they've been great guests on the show and they've come back and, and, and it's been such a great well for people, for listeners around the world to be able to listen to this and, and then apply it and help create that self-awareness, right? And then with books like yours and Kristen Neff's and Todd's and Brene's where they can go and practice it because I think that's the important component. It's not just this intellectual understanding, but then how do you practice it? How do you live it in your life? How do you integrate it into your life? And those are the things that you were wrapping up in the takeaway. So I appreciate that. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you.
So here on this wrap up, I want to talk about something that it's a concept that I've come up with and I work with my clients on, and you've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a bit, is where are you rooted? So when Alice was talking about the butter, it may start out with, oh, I'm just not going to have butter. And then it escalates into, I'm not going to have salad dressing. And then it escalates into this. And and then it can at some points become a downward spiral into an eating disorder. And one of the things that I have really learned is that it's where are you rooted? Are you rooted in scarcity? Are you rooted in shame? And then those actions like, oh, I can't have butter because it's not good for me or it will make me fat or whatever the, the thoughts are going on in your mind versus I choose not to have butter. I don't like the way it feels. That's being rooted in compassion. And I'm not saying pro, I mean, some of you may be confused because I'm using that that story of butter or that metaphor of butter when I've have all these guests who come on and talk about how but you know it's good to eat butter so I'm this is just an example this is not what you need to do in your life in terms of what you eat just want to clarify that but where are you rooted and that part becomes really important if you're rooted in that anxiety place and you take action what's the result going to be and that is really important, paying attention into that. Where are you rooted? And knowing that. So when you're anxious, what happens? What are the results when you take action versus when you can get into that? For me, my pref- my preferred zone is to be like calm because when I'm calm, then my brain opens up. I can really think things through. So where are you rooted when you take action? And that also goes into this idea of perfection, right? Perfection is actually rooted in scarcity, which is, you know, best friends with shame. So this idea of perfection, like I have to do this perfect, I have to do this perfect, like Alice was talking about where you keep raising the standard and you never get there and it has to be perfect. It has to be perfect when it's rooted for in scarcity, right? The the actions that you take is always going to be, it's always going to, in the end, the result will feel not enough that you didn't accomplish enough. So it's it becomes a shame storm. It's a downward spiral versus if you do, you know, healthy striving where you want to do really good quality work or you really want to um you know, be your best but not be perfect, right? Be your best parent, be your best leader, um be your best be the best employee that you can be, not somebody else can cuz cuz comparisons in there with with shame but be your best, that's different than perfection because perfection is an illusion that really makes us shrink, right? Being perfect. I mean, there's that, I remember my kids were little, they would say, mom, nobody's perfect. And it was that Miley Cyrus song from Hannah Montana. But if you can get that kind of programming at a young age, I'm all for that, wherever it comes from, even if it's from Disney. Um, And then the other thing is, having this idea of a team, like Alice used the word tribe. And uh, if you're a Seth Godin fan, he's written a whole book about tribes, but who are your people? And you know, my athletic background, even though I don't really understand a whole lot about football, even after all these years and being a 49er fan and loving Joe Montana and Dwight Clark and all those guys, but you know, who are the people on your team and what do they do? And so not judging, like maybe I'm anxious and, you know, my best friend's not, but like, how does that package make us better for the world? You know, how does that allow us to show up as our best selves? You know, what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses? And sometimes our strengths can also be our weaknesses. So we, we, you know, we, we have to realize that, but again, it's like, where are we dialing it up from? Or like I say, where are you rooted? And then this idea of testing, 
testing things out. And my word that I use is experimenting. Go and experiment, right? Sometimes I can get stuck in that perfectionist thing because I'm, I can be rooted in scarcity and, or thinking I just have to get this done. So it has to be perfect. So I don't have to come back to it. And I noticed that when this just happened this week, I noticed when I was in that state, I get heightened and there was some anxiety. It was like the more that I thought it had to be perfect or that I couldn't change it, the more I would freeze. So understanding that, you know, giving yourself permission to test it out, to circle back. I'm constantly circling back and constantly testing out. And I just remind myself, Corinne, you can try this. It doesn't have to be perfect. You can go back and change it. Constantly telling myself that to get me set myself calm. And then I love this idea that emotions are a signaling system. I mean, you've heard this a ton of times on the show, whether it's Carla McElhern or Todd Cashton or, you know, so many of the guests, you know, Brene Brown, where they've talked about this in Harriet Lerner, the dance of anger, where they've talked about this, these negative emotions aren't a bad thing. And if you can think of it and reframe it as a signaling system and get out of that judgment, there's something wrong with me. And instead it's, oh, what is my body trying to keep me aware of? What may not be safe for me and how do I want to move through it? And then letting go of this idea finally of the promised land, right? That promised land and that perfectionism is going to bring you the promised land. There's it, we, we are evolving creatures and, and really it comes down to being comfortable with the uncomfortable. It doesn't mean 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you have to be uncomfortable and you always have to be struggling, like have joy and have fun. We want to have all the emotions, right? We want to, Brene has talked about if you dim the dark, you dim the light, right? If you dim those dark emotions, you can't feel those great emotions. And it's about having them all just not living in the dark emotions and it's also really difficult to sustain joyfulness 24 seven. I mean, you can test it out. Tell me where I'm wrong. So thanks so much for listening today. I want to do a shout out to Tina can two, 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 two for, uh, for leaving an iTunes reviews. Thanks so much you guys for the iTunes reviews and the emails. And if you haven't already, sign up for my weekly newsletter at howsheReallyDoesIt.com where we can stay connected. You can get insight into how to integrate all these great interviews into your life, how you can practice without being perfect, without being overwhelmed, but how you can integrate it in your real life. So until next week, have a great week. Early morning, fog is lifting. She's in a on a She is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so. Sold-